Hello, I'm Simon King and this is Nature Space with Hates. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Natalie Petarelli. Natalie's a senior scientist at the Zoological Society of London. Natalie's work focuses on the relationship between nature and climate crisis and what solutions there may be to tackle these crises jointly. We're talking about urban rewilding, but what is urban rewilding and can it make a difference? Dr. Natalie Petarelli, you know, thank you for joining me today, and, and thanks for uh, taking some time out to talk to Hayes and to our listeners. And it's it's really exciting to have, you know, the lead author of a of uh, what seems to be a landmark rewilding report. And hopefully, if it's doing what it aims to do, it seems to me from reading it that you know this is an opportunity to boost wildlife, buffer town and city dwellers from the worst of climate change. And I think what I want to do is, if possible, is to kind of understand what the opportunity is for this increased urban rewilding, what it offers. But first, I thought it would, great, it would be great, really, if our listeners could know a little bit more about yourself and perhaps how you define yourself professionally and what the, the basis of your work is, if that's okay. Of course. Um, hello, Simon, and thank you very much for having me uh, on your program. I'm... Um... I'm a conservation biologist, so I'm really interested in uh, helping the world retain biological diversity, so the wonder of nature, uh, those complexities that make our world so interesting um, and so unpredictable, but at the same time so safe. Um, and so um, I uh, started in ecology, as you can hear from my accent, I'm, I'm from France. I did my PhD over there on rhodia. So I started as a species person. I was interested in population dynamics, which is trying to understand and predict why animals' number goes down or up to better manage them. And then uh, after my PhD, I moved to Norway and Canada, um, but I started to be really interested in climate change and the impact of climate change on nature. And then in 2006, I moved to the Zoological Society of London, where I'm still working. I originally starting to, started to work on cheetah population dynamic in the Serengeti, but I continued a lot of my work on climate change. And so um, I started to move from a species perspective to more of an ecosystem perspective and a landscape perspective. And I continued to work on the impact of climate change, but I got more and more frustrated about thinking about solutions instead of just reporting problems all the time, which is how in 2015-16 I started to get really interested in uh, the concept of rewilding. Um, and then it has been a journey up until uh, that report uh, published in um, September uh, 2022. What I want to do is I want to try and avoid acting like I know what rewilding means, or certainly urban rewilding. I have a, a, a reasonable, I think, concept of, of what it means, but I kind of hoped that you might be able to explain it to me in a way that I can understand it better and have a more informed view of, of what it is and, and, and what the opportunity is. You know, what is urban rewilding and how can it help us? Well, it's not surprising that uh, that you find the world rewilding a bit confusing because it's a relatively novel concept in ecosystem management. And part of the problem is that it had it and it has huge appeal with the public, um, which means that it has been used in uh, all kind of settings, uh, from people uh, bringing back a specific animal to a certain situation to moving elephants, if you remember that some years ago from from the UK to Kenya to uh, talking about basically more or less anything. 
Um, but scientifically speaking, it's a, it's a concept that uh, originated in the 80s in the US. And uh, it was uh, uh, funded on, on three, what's called the three C's, the core carnivore corridors. And at that time, in the 1980s, it was all about bringing back those big carnivores in big core areas, uh, which might be well connected to try to bring the megafauna back. But since, since then, this, this concept has evolved a lot. It has moved into something that is maybe best understood as a conservation approach that really is about bringing back natural processes in functionally degraded ecosystems. So you're talking about making ecosystems that are not doing well working better by trying to bring back those those, uh, natural interaction that makes the system work better. And the idea is to put them on a trajectory to being more ecologically complex, so more interaction between species, more species, and less subjected to uh, human intervention. So what you're aiming for is minimal to no ongoing management uh, on the long term. And I think that's roughly where we are at uh, nowadays as to what rewilding means. Now, you may wonder what's the difference between then rewilding and restoration, because we have been doing restoration for for a very long time. So why is rewilding (laughs) novel or different? (laughs) So uh, restoration... The, the, the idea is that you tend to have to use historical benchmark. Uh, you have a high fidelity to taxonomic precedent as of you're trying to bring back what was there before. And you're also uh, quite interested in having those systems in stable condition. So a relatively uh, high predictability of those ecosystem dynamics. With rewilding, it's quite different. You're not that systematically interested in in, in uh, bringing back what was there before. And you're open to the idea that you might have species that wasn't there before, but that will be okay in those ecosystems because they feel a role that uh, the species that used to do it is simply not available, maybe extinct. Um, and then you're also, because you're going with lower management, so, so in restoration, generally that happens at relatively small scale and there's a lot of continuous management, which means that uh, the cost per hectare of doing restoration tends to be relatively high. With rewilding, you're looking at lower management intensity. And so therefore, you're looking also at less predictable ecosystem dynamics. One important thing that I think helps also people understand the difference between uh, between restoration and rewilding is um, this idea of translocation. So sometimes you're moving species back into something. When you're doing it because it was there before, you're you're more in the realm of restoration. When you're moving it because it's, it's doing a function, because it's doing something that makes the system work better, you're in the realm of rewilding. Now, I have a friend that used a metaphor that I find extremely helpful to explain the difference between restoration and rewilding. And the metaphor goes as follows. Imagine you buy a very old taxi, a Cuban taxi. If you're into restoration, you're going to spend a lot of time finding the right tires, the right material, the right paint. And success will really be when you'll get that taxi looking as it was looking in the 60s, as iconic Cuban taxi. I see. With rewilding, you really don't care about the paint, the tires. You just put anything. The thing that you're really focused on is, do can I get to drive that taxi? Does it work? And that's that, I think, is, uh, is uh, in a nutshell, trying to explain the difference between the two.
I see. So, it, it, yeah, I've got that now, I, I think. And so this is, I think, as your report says, it's it's not about helping the recovery of the, of the giraffe, the lion populations and, and, and the big carnivores and so on. It's, a, it's about trying to get this taxi moving again and then see what clings to it. See, get someone to drive it, see what clings to it, see what occupants come and join you on your taxi ride. And if it all clings and works together, fine, we should have something that lives and is perfect for that moment in time and space and history. Is that it, roughly? It, yeah, basically, it's about. It's not about endpoint. It's about making things better. And uh, there's there's a gradient in how much you can th- make things better. But every ecosystem, you can improve their functionality when they have been degraded. Which is why the rewilding concept works for cities, because cities are a urban ecosystem, and urban ecosystem are not. Are not a trash ecosystem. It's not you can't you can't see urban ecosystem as a, a very degraded forest or a very degraded wetlands. They they are ecosystems in themselves. They are human ecosystem. They have a very complex structure and organization. But those ecosystems, like any ecosystem, you can make them uh, ecologically perform better. You can make them more complex so that they deliver more ecosystem services to people. And that's how uh, rewilding works for cities. And as you explained, it, uh, making things work better doesn't systematically... The end point is not the, the wolves and the lynx, etc. It's not because you don't reintroduce a top predator that you're not doing something important as because you're still moving it on that gradient to, to making it work better. And, is, and, and, and climate change and biodiversity loss must be complicating this massively. And and and, it, and is that why your report says that it's, or, or I think you say that we must tackle the climate change and biodiversity loss crisis in unison? They're not they're not separate. So, so there's two different aspects to to your comment. I mean, uh, the first one is that yes, uh, climate change is reshuffling uh, life on Earth. Everything's moving. And so in some places, if you're working with degraded system, in some places, you just you can't bring them back to what they were 100 years ago. The climate situation has changed so much that you just really can't. That said, it doesn't mean that uh, you can't anywhere at all. Restoration has a huge place to play in conservation. There's still places where restoration is the way to go because the context, because of the climate situation, because of the socio-ecological situation, restoration makes sense. The, the point here is that rewilding uh, adds to the portfolio of conservation tools. So it provides a framework to start to think about how do you... Um, address ecosystem degradation in places where it's just not possible to bring it back to where it was. The second point that uh, you were making was about the joint, the the importance of uh, tackling the climate change and the biodiversity loss crisis together. Now, that's because those two crises are equally threatening uh, humans around the world, and they are dependent. So what's happening is that the climate change crisis is affecting wildlife so it's it's uh, leading to local extinction uh, sometime uh, extinction of species altogether although we were still lacking a lot of, of documentation for that it's altering the way ecosystem works and then the other way around goes too so nature is sequester and store carbon all the time and so when you are a degrading ecosystem what you're basically doing is putting more carbon in the atmosphere so making 
the climate change crisis worse. And so when you do nature recovery uh, with those peatlands, uh, with those, and it's, I'm not just talking about trees, it's really important to understand that nature recovery yes. doesn't mean tree planting. <laughs> um, right. Then, So when you're recovering those ecosystems all around the world and you're making them more functional, what you're doing is basically helping nature help us uh, store carbon. And it doesn't mean that we can just count on nature and continue to emit like mad. Um, so nature reco recovery on its own is not going to get us out of the climate change uh, crisis. We absolutely have to uh, decarbonize and, uh, and uh, stop emission as quickly as possible. But nature helps us give us a, a helping hand, especially when it comes to adaptation. And so nature has a, a, a great... A way to potentially help us go through what's what's being brought by climate change. So if you think about a flood, for example, uh, nature recovery can really help with uh, increasing the rate of water infiltration, as well as slowing the water flows. Think about those beavers, or uh, reduce the risk of bank collapse and erosion, and all of that reduce the impact of flooding on a human population. I could do the same talking to you about a heat wave or drought or extreme natural event in general um, on top of the other impact of climate change. It's not what I thought it was. In my mind, I was thinking it was more restoration. It's not. And I can see that there's an, a lower cost element to this. There's a hands-off kind of management approach. And so what's stopping us from doing this? Is it just we are doing it... Um, and um, nothing's stopping us. So it, as you say, it, 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 it's, it's a more recent word in this work is carrying out already. But what, what can stop us? You know, it seems great. It seems low cost, hands off management approach. And there's a, there's a lot in it for us in, in towns and cities and urban settings. So, you know, what's the, what's the problem? Well, there's there's a number of uh, of um, of things that needs to be taken into account. First, although there's a lot of benefits, there might there also is a number of challenges to to think it through. Uh, so depending on a, on a how, so if we're if we're talking about rewilding in our cities, um, depending on how it's done, you could uh, probably potentially make the problem of invasive uh, alien species a little bit more problematic. You uh, could uh, potentially increase human-wildlife conflict uh, because uh, especially uh, in a very developed country such as the UK that are very depleted of nature, people have a kind of have a reduced sense of coexisting with nature. You know, anything that is a, a bit of an annoyance becomes uh, becomes very problematic. So, so there is a, a wall pass to take for all of all of us to to relearn uh, to live with nature and understand that um, that it's a coexistence problem. There's also a, um, a problem that could uh, be linked to uh, divesting resources from a traditional cons conservation site. So if suddenly everybody just completely focus on rewilding, we forget that rewilding is just, just one option for bringing back nature. So you, what you don't want is suddenly completely divest funds from uh, things that are working very well, uh, such as a, a lot of restoration projects all over cities in the UK and beyond. And then there's the problem also of a policy context and um, legal and financing structure. So for long term, conservation has been about composition. So bringing back what was there before, whether you have that species there, that species there. And um, it, it really isn't that good at understanding functioning. 
So whether something works better or not, uh, you remember that that taxi driver? It's much mm. more easy to know whether you have the right paint or the right tire than uh, it is to monitor whether something is working slightly better or less better, especially when you're not used to that. And conservation in general has been more looking at species more than ecosystem. The, the, the focus on ecosystem and uh, ecosystem uh, dynamics is relatively new for conservation, I would say 20 years max, in terms of really implementing, um, starting to think about frameworks to look at uh, ecosystem, how well they are doing, uh, prioritize their restoration, etc. And then the, the how to monitor the functioning of of ecosystem is a relatively new, but because of that, it means that a lot of the legalities and the financing model are based on composition more than functionality. So we don't really have the right framework to support those uh, rewilding projects in a way where investors will feel compelled to invest for a long time because uh, they, there's, there's still some work to do to make sure that we can demonstrate that we have the right tool to demonstrate that there is improvement so that money goes towards improvement, if it makes sense. Yes, it does make sense. Uh, I suppose this is a continuing question that, that I see on social media and LinkedIn and so on, where people talk about nature and value in nature and nat- natural capital and making financial decisions. And it's very hard, isn't it? I, I guess it must be for if I'm a politician right now, you know, how do I make a decision that lasts? And I, I mean, if, if we're talking about rewilding, the kind of areas I have in mind and replacing some of the traditional uh, income like, you know, grouse shoots and so on. These things will take a long time, won't they? So how do I, if I make that decision now, it could be very unpopular and, and I may not have my seat for very long. Uh, and yet on, on top of all these things, we need capital decisions, we need science, but we also need time. Time has to, the seasons have to come and go in other words. So, so I would never say that uh, you have to impose on people how uh, th- what they should do with their land or how you should cho- change their landscape. It has to be done with people. So I, I don't think that the role of politician is to say you, you, we're going to rewild this and this, and you 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 just find another way <laughs> of living. Yes. Um, I think the role of the politician is to enable the people that want to change something to be able to change something. So um, what's interesting is that a lot of people and a lot of farmers are really interested in changing their practices and, and trying to put more nature in, uh, in their um, farms. But, but it is, it's difficult for them to have the, the right legal framework and financing framework that make them sure that they can go with this idea and really go for putting more nature and, and that they can, and, and as you say, time is really important. If you take that decision, you're committing for the next you know, 50 plus year. So you you kind of need to know that you can, that police, political instability, for example, will not compromise the choice that you're making right now. And that's where politicians, that's their, their responsibility and their role is to create the environment, a secure, stable, well-thought-through, enabling environment that, that support people that want to make change, to do change. It's not to tell people to, to start deciding and force people to go in routes they don't want to go. Yeah, that, that's, that's understood and, and makes complete sense. And, and it won't work either anyway. It, you know, people have to understand, they have to buy into it. And I imagine... You know, this is where the, the science comes in and, you know, the conversations with stakeholders and so on, which is brilliant. What can we do? What can, you know, people like myself, you know, people maybe listening to this think, well, that, that's all well and good. This sounds 
such a huge issue, but I'm going to switch off because there's nothing I can do here. I have a garden or I have a window box or I have a, you know, a, a, an allotment. There's not a lot I can do here. I can't rewild that. Or can I? What can I do? Because I think we, we mentioned about some of these conservation starting from home uh, and we talk about private gardens. And I think the interesting thing is the way I see what we do, which is what we do here is feed the birds, but we're a little bit more than that. We go to great lengths to feed them you know, high quality food that's clean. But, but what I am interested in is understanding the dynamics of, of, of maybe the people who go out of their way to feed the birds and what part do they play in, in this rewilding opportunity. So one thing in the report is it mentioned stepping stones and corridors. In my mind, I see people who make space for nature and wildlife in their own gardens. These stepping stones, the more we have of them, the more opportunity nature has of making its way to that core habit, you know, that core habitat and so on. Does that any of that make sense or is it too small to really count? No, I think that that is exactly the point of that report is to start to shift the responsibility to absolutely everyone. So 80 plus percent of the, the UK people live in cities. And so we can't continue to have a conversation where we just blame one portion of, of the population, particularly around a rural area and, and farming, uh, to say it's your responsibility to bring that back and you're not changing enough and you're not making stuff. You, we all have a role to play in uh, right. helping nature recovery. Now, the way to understand this is that uh, cities and urban ecosystem have a different uh, way of functioning than those uh, big core area with you know the, the Western American vision of those big area without people, etc., which completely deforms to some extent our understanding of the wild and nature. It is one part of nature, but na- nature matters everywhere. It's not just far away, far from people. Actually, nature can coexist very well with people. Um, and so the idea here is to understand that cities are patches of habitat. And what matters for urban ecosystem functioning is connectivity. So those animals, those those uh, those um, communities, ecological communities that do well in cities are those that that uh, are able to move around and really use the ecosystem as a role. Now, every time you and I'm going to use the word rewild uh, your garden, which in this sense means you know not filling it with uh, exotic species or, worst, uh, green artificial grass. <laughs> but instead, right, okay. uh, letting, all those, letting all those plants that people tend to see as weeds, let, let, them, let them come. Because a lot of the things that people think are weeds are actually really, really important species uh, for, for a lot of insects and a lot of invertebrates. Um, so... Getting those uh, uh, those fruit bushes like blackberries, getting those native uh, wild uh, species of flowers, all of that helps bring food and help connectivity within that urban ecosystem. And that has the potential, if done by enough people, to increase the connectivity and therefore increase the functioning of our urban ecosystem. And there's a lot of reason why it's a good idea to do that. Just for, for, for one-off, as soon as you have a lot of nature in your garden, it does it does help with heat, a little bit with heat wave, a little bit with uh, water infiltration. So, so it's more than just a, a good thing of heart. It actually helps your city make it more resilient to climate change. 
I mean, what damage have we done to nature, to biodiversity, if we say, you know, I have a, a, an average size garden, I, I put it plastic turf on it. What have I just done? Well, you've removed all the food for anything that uh, that that lives above or below. Uh, below the ground, you kill it through heat. Above the ground, you've removed all the habitat and all the food. So you've made it uh, unlivable. <laughs> the, the, the thing is that um, convenience doesn't systematically help our world. And, and the, the focus on how it looks, which change over time, what we find interesting aesthetically, is not constant uh, around region people all over time. And, but, but it has a huge ecological cost. So this is my previous point about relearning to live with nature um, because mm. uh, the, that convenience of always wanting to, oh, that, you know, that thing is inconvenient, that thing is inconvenient, has, has led to, to a really damaged world, including the, our cities. And so if we can, and I think it's a journey. I don't think you need to go straight into creating a jungle in your garden and that, right. you know, from an a astroturf. But I think taking is one step at a time and see how you can adapt and then move a little bit more. To the people go on a journey to relearn to make space for nature, basically. Um, but it's a journey that we all need to start. Uh, and that's what that report is saying. And yeah, I think I'm getting that now. And, and that making space for nature and that relearning, you know, how to, how to live with nature, as you say, it's very much a journey, which is why we set this podcast up, really. We're we're a company that we feel like we're on a, a mission to make a positive difference. There's no point reading a report like this and saying, oh, that's great. We'll use it in our marketing. We want to, we want people to be able to understand it. So would you say then, you know, uh, here I am, it's the weekend, I'm, I'm walking into a garden center. What, what I need to do is, mm. you know, I might be drawn into these exotic plants and they look stimulating and we don't want to put garden centers out of business and things. But, but what we do want to do is we want to, we, we want to, Stop and think a moment. Can you can you explain, Natalie? What's the if I put if I put an exotic species in the garden compared to say put a native species of of, of tree or plant or, or or whatever? What am I doing? You know, in in terms of how how more likely am I, am I to attract you know insects, you know pollinate pollinating species and so on? You know, what's the difference? But the difference is that our world is a connected world, and we're part of that. It is this, this, we have evolved all together as a group, millions of species, uh, with dependencies. And so species eat specific things that they have co-evolved with, that they are used to, which means that if you put an exotic from far away, most of the species that are here have no idea, well, they can't exploit that. It's not food for them, and, and they, can't, they can't rely on it. So basically, you're reducing their habitat by doing that. And, uh, and also, you increase the chance of setting up species that might outperform some native, and so therefore uh, spread, um, which is uh, what happens with invasive species. Um, so there's a lot of examples all over the world where people have moved trees, bushes, plants that they they sow somewhere, so it looks really good, and sort of why not get that, that home? And then it creates huge ecological damage at home. So um, I think one of the famous examples is the mesquite bush tree that has been moved all over the world and has completely taken over some rivers, completely changed the flow, had dramatic impact on biodiversity. So working with your native 
is uh, and and by native I really mean species that can be used by other species that live there, so that there's uh, synergies and those dependencies work, so that you're making the your taxi work better again. Yeah. I see. Now this is interesting because we we move Hades moves. We're we're moving our uh, building uh, our business to a. Uh, another site in Lincolnshire and what we're going to be doing we do already do this here by the way but what we're going to be doing when we move is we've bought a, a you know a larger plot that we really needed uh, we'll be putting our building up but we're with our drainage for example is going to be dealt with with the wildlife attenuation ponds we're going to have uh, another pond where we've created we'll create this jetty where our staff our teams because we're a manufacturer we have to work you know, we have to come to work, really. We can't really work from home and, and do what we do. But we, what we want them to be able to do is to walk out of the, the kitchen area and sit and have a break with nature and so on. But the main point, I'm, I guess I'm trying to get across, is we're also going to give back to nature commercial space. And, and this is something we're really passionate about. So we've bought more land, secured more land, so that actually we can give more commercial space back to nature because we want to be able to operate as a business and say, this area here, and, and we had grand schemes, we'll be planting uh, native species, but I'm also thinking some of it we just need to leave and just, just let it do its yeah. thing, let it let, let it work. Yeah, absolutely. I think <laughs> I think sometimes, I mean, you know, if you're in, a, in an area that, where there's no seed banks and there's no possible uh, natural colonization, then of course you're going to have to plant and seeds. But you know, in most garden, all you need to do is just leave it, leave it alone a bit. Basically, let, <laughs> let all <laughs> those species, <laughs> all those species that that you think are, are problematic are generally very, very helpful. I mean, I, now I have a garden, um, I, and um, uh, just leaving it without uh, doing much, you suddenly get all those those plants you had no idea about that actually um, a super important resource for for some really cool moth and butterfly. Um, and you get all that diversity suddenly, even if it's in a small garden in the middle of city, you'd be amazed by nature doesn't need to be big to uh, to entice you. You know, there's a, there's a, the connection that you can have on those moments. They don't need to come in the form of a giant animal. Sometimes small things coming back or a little wind that, that gives you that connection with nature. So the, the key is the connectivity. The, the stepping stones, even if I'm in a high rise, I ha, uh, you know, and I, and I, or a, a flat that I have a window box, I can still think that that can have a connection for natural history. I can put something in there that will, you know, some something native perhaps, or I could just leave it, let let it grow, little grasses and things, and it would still do something for insects. There are some really good examples. So uh, uh, in the report, we reference a, a website called Rewild My Street that really give you a lot of opportunity from whether you have a garden to whether you really just are on a, in, a, in a flat. But there's this enormous example, a really cool example in London of roof, not managed green roof with a lot of water and using a lot of energy, just roof uh, let for colonization and, and uh, recolonization, natural recolonization, which brings yeah. pollinators and stuff. So, so it's worth exploring what you're up to. I think everyone will have a different answer to this. But there's a lot of tools and resources to provide inspiration for what you may want to do. A pond, fresh water is, a, is something that is really important, especially during heat waves. So if you, if you can have a little pond, you're helping a lot of species with that, for example. 
I said, letting the native uh, wild plants, adding those berries, bushes, really a favorite for, for a lot of birds and wildlife in general. Those blackberries, a lot of species depend on them. They, they have co-evolved with those, with those uh, source of food for, for quite a number of years here in the UK. Do, do nest boxes, could nest boxes play a, to give them a helping hand now whilst we're waiting for no, nature to work its magic? Of course, nesting boxes are important, especially in cities. And they, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a shortage uh, for, for yes. many bird species of uh, nesting areas. So yeah, yeah of but it, again, it depends on your context. It depends on uh, where you live. It depends whether the, where would be the nest box, whether it's, it's at a height that is actually a height likely to be used, whether it, it opens it more to predators. There's a lot of, again, have a look at those at those resources and website, which gives you a clear understanding of to tailor, because because this is not a one a one size fits all type of thing. It's mm. much more tailored your approach to where you live and what's feasible, and what you're prepared to do, and then and then go on that journey one step at a time. I'll take a look at the rewild my street, and, and I'll put a link in in the podcast for that as well, and we can, you know, encourage people to. It's not we're not all blessed with large gardens and so on, but we're already hearing that it, it doesn't matter. It's it's that opportunity, you know, that connectivity that's important as well. I think more importantly, um, the conversation we have today shows that uh, you're interested in in uh, the broader picture and and it's the broader picture that matters. Our last guest, actually, previous was, a, is, I don't know whether you've had a chance to listen to, but he's, he's referred to, he's the canoe river cleaner and he, he's kind of sing almost, not single-handedly, actually, he's got a lot of help from the community and, and local councils and so on, but he, he had a little bit of misfortune during lockdown and he's turned that in, into an opportunity to help clean the river freshly, but he does it from a Canadian canoe he's, and he's, he's very um, down to earth about what he does, you know, as far as he's concerned, he's just removing the litter. But I wondered whether what your thoughts might be on that, because he said to me, all I do is remove the litter. And he, he, he would be the first to, to admit he's not an ecologist. But I just wondered whether when he listens to this, whether you could give him any encouragement as to, to what difference, if he's cleaning a river up and he's removing um, litter from it, how much good is he doing? Is, you know, how, how much more benefit is a clean river than a, than a dirty river, really, that's full of litter? Well, the first thing to say is that he's not the only one to do that. There's there's a lot of people all over the UK spending their time whenever they can cleaning things. And I know that uh, I live in an area where I get my kids to uh, clean uh, the streets and the parks uh, on a regular basis. And so do a lot of parents nearby here. So I think uh, the, the, the important thing is to realize that uh, individual action inspire others to do more yes. and then um that's changed the uh, shift the baseline as to what you expect from your environment and when you're starting to say that's my home my environment is my home i want to clean i want a home that works well i want a home where animals uh, biodiversity thrive then others are more likely to see it as valuable and start to also invest the time and energy to make that work so beyond just the impact of uh, one person removing a litter in uh, in reverse, and of course this has a positive impact uh, because removing plastic, removing detritus that can damage wildlife is always helpful. But, but more more importantly, it has an impact on other people, which uh, may be inspired and may start to think differently about their river and how it relates to them and what's the benefit to them and why they wouldn't do that a little bit too. So, so there's there's a bigger again there's a bigger picture. 
There is a big picture. We we hear from people all over the country who do some amazing things. They give so much time and, you know, without looking for any a pat on the back or, you know, a handshake or, or any encouragement at all, really. They just do it. You know, they put a high vis on and, and walk up and down the street and, and collect things. And that's just one more tin can that's not on the street and so on. And and I, and I think that's, again, you know, we're aiming to try and talk to some of these people just so we can... Uh, and hopefully by them sharing their story encourages other people to take action too, really, including ourselves, you know, including Hates. This is a learning curve for us, uh, very much a journey as well. I mean, there there still are people who say that climate change is not a thing, probably not enough time on our podcast to, to convince them. But in this data, I think I think you actually study satellite data as well, Natalie, as well. Is, is that what could you share from your own experience uh, that makes us understand that, you know, climate change and biodiversity loss are not are not going away unless we change our actions. Well, so the role of a scientist is to we are paid by people to mm. give you an assessment of of how things are going. And ninety nine point nine 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 percent of us are uh, uh, have demonstrated and have built consensus around the fact that our climate is changing very rapidly, and we're going through we're going to. Uh, a climate breakdown, um, which could soon reach tipping points and affect, me, I mean, everyone, but some quite soon and quite harshly. And that will have a devastating impact on our world. And then the same levels goes with the biodiversity crisis. So, you know, there's huge consensus that we are losing, uh, we are losing biodiversity really, really fast. And this is going to have an, a huge impact on people. We can only do what we're paid for, which is to give you the answer based on all the work that we do. And then how people decide to take this information, there's there's a, a limitation to, to what we can do. Because sometimes people have opinions or belief that will not move independently of how much fact you give them. For those people, it becomes only a matter of experiencing it on a personal basis. Now, we have left it so long, especially the climate change and the biodiversity deaths, that we are experiencing it right now. So my guess is that uh, people are, the, the number of people that doubt what we are going through is, is uh, shrinking very fastly, <laughs> very quickly. Mm. So I'm not that much concerned about getting the remnant uh, to really accept what's going on. I'm, I'm much more interested in uh, finding solution to, to get the huge majority of people, which are, in, in my opinion, much more aware, much more willing to do something than, than government uh, on some aspect. They're, they're faster. They're, the number of people really worried um, marching on the street. When you, see, when you see the intense stress and worry, among the UK population and other population around climate change and the, the lack of leadership uh, from government on this. I'm not worried about deniers. I'm much more worried about uh, people that, that are not moving fast enough. Uh, and that, that's the politician. Uh, and that's mm. the one that really do need to move. Yes, because I, I, I can see that, you know, we, we as individuals have to, to do something. We've got a responsibility. It's, it's our planet and, and we're here once and, and, you know, our legacy is not going to be very good. It's not, you know, what we leave for our, our children and grandchildren. But I, I suppose the, the other side of that is politically people have to 
make longer term decisions that, that support what we do as well. But I think the interesting point is, and I agree with you, I don't, I don't, certainly don't want this to be about trying to convince people that, that climate change is there, because I, I think we can, we can see it for ourselves. How positive and hopeful are you about the future? I've been asked this question many times, and my answer is always the same. Um, so the first one is that I, I don't have a choice. I I want uh, to have a home. <laughs> my planet, you know, matters to me, and I wanted to do it well. And I have children and families and people I love that I want to do well in the future. So so I you can't really afford not to have hope, um, especially when you work in conservation. Imagine the if you work in that field, you have to believe that there's a solution, and there are, there really are. This it's this mm. is not a dead end, and this is not uh, this is mostly about people and uh, and getting uh, to the right path together and how to build that together. You've supplied to Prime Minister for your work on something called soapbox science. Mm-hmm. Is that something you could tell me a little bit about? Subbox science is about this idea that there should be more connection between the general public and scientists, so that um, it sh- it should be. So it's, it's 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 two aims really. One is to improve the visibility of uh, of uh, women in science. There's still a lot of issue about people not not seeing a science and being a scientist as a career or girls, um, and a lot of uh, preconception and biases. And the second one is about uh, science communication and how do you talk to people that that do not choose to hear about science as of how do you reach out and connect with uh, audiences that are not that fascinated by science that don't see the relevance of science that do not want to know more connect instead so there's a lot of venue for people that are interested in science to connect with whether it's a royal institution a scientific cafe etc but what we were interested in is providing providing a venue where we we try to reach and connect with people that um, that do not choose to hear about science, to, to, to give them an opportunity in, in the most unusual format. So literally, we stand on sub boxes in, uh, in busy streets, <laughs> shopping centers, uh, beaches. <laughs> and so we just talk without, without PowerPoints, without computers, without anything. It's just a chat. Um, and that gives the opportunity uh, for scientists to remember why we are scientists, yes. which is to to help people, but to people to understand that scientists are not living in ivory towers that are impenetrable and they are like, you know, very nerdy, non-human people. So to try to create that connection again, so because it is it is at the core of uh, why many of us become scientists and why science is so important to support societies all over the world i love it i love the idea of that because i i think we're scared we're scared of of science of scientists and so on because we we don't want to feel like we don't understand it but that's the point here isn't it if you if you're doing the science and you can help us to understand it when we might take action or and hopefully we will take action and then we're working in synergy aren't we rather than working from a, a, a position of of just guesswork because time is running out well the thing is that there's nothing that cannot be explained simply. <laughs> um, so the, the the jargon that we have in within the scientific sphere doesn't have to be the jargon we use to communicate to to people. And so this is also a really nice exercise for our scientists on subboxes to take the time to think about how to explain what they do and the relevance of what they do to to people in using uh, uh, words, everyday words, instead of making it uh, uh, unnecessary 
non-accessible. I see. And if somebody was looking to pursue a career in uh, science, and let's say, you know, is, is ZSL, here's a loaded question, is, is the ZSL's Institute of Zoology a good place to start? <laughs> There's a lot of uh, scientific place all over the UK. UK has a has a is has a very good history of supporting and enabling science. I think the the best advice is uh, to to start to connect with people and ask questions to get an idea as to what you want to do. And uh, so so I mean schools have a, a lot of um, of uh, things in place to help people navigate their career choice. But uh, sometimes, uh, and I'm thinking here at A-level and, and uh, in particular, uh, you might be a bit, uh, uh, you know, you're not completely sure as to how to get to that type of job or what does it entail to do that type of job. Sometimes the best is just to drop an email. Fantastic. Could we just take a quick moment? I know it's only a quick moment, really, so it's going to be a brief overview. But what does... Is- what does the work of, of the modern work of ZSL look like today? Because I think if I said, if I said to somebody who didn't know who ZSL is and said to the Institute of Zoology, they're going to immediately think of zoos and they're going to think about animals and captive breeding and so on. But it's a lot more than that, isn't it? Really? Yes, it is much more. The, the Institute of Zoology is a center of excellence for conservation biology. So, mm. so very little to do with zoo per se. It's about um, mm. uh, doing the research that enables the recovery of nature, basically, and also um, finding solution to retain a biological diversity. So it's an interdisciplinary uh, research center, which means that it brings people with very different uh, skills from uh, mathematics and statistics to geography, uh, physics, as well as biology. Uh, so and social sciences, of course. Um, so um, uh, sometimes psychology, sometimes uh, economic, economics. So um, a legal uh, consideration from time to time. So um, much, much. So very little to do with zoos. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Connected yeah. to some extent. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. You know, I just think it was. In, in, I think finish off by just giving us some some encouragement. Maybe a couple of things that we should be thinking about. What can we do? How important is it? Can you inspire us, Natalie? Please, <laughs> especially on a well, great day no, like I'm it is do, here in Lincolnshire. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do a little bit more than this. So we started this okay. conversation by saying that you need to tackle the climate change and the biodiversity crisis together. So the first, the, the things that I would say, maybe think think for yourself where you can do something. The first, the first one is uh, carbon emission. Where can you cut your carbon emission? And that goes from uh, how you travel to what you eat to where you source what you're buying. Um, because if you if, that's a crisis we really need to think about. And there is no other way than cutting our emission. So can you change anything into uh, the energy um, architecture of your home? Can you change anything about your travel? Think about your carbon emission and how to change that because if everyone was to do that uh, we would be in a much much uh, better place than where we are now and then uh, the second one is what can you do to tackle the biodiversity crisis and of course you can do a, a lot of things from voting for uh, for the people that have actually a plan to um, uh, looking at um, uh, how what you do and your choices impact biodiversity loss again has to do with what you eat uh, and 
what you buy and where they're made and how it has been made, etc. But uh, the other one is also how uh, you can invite a bit of nature back into your home. And that's where this uh, Rewilding Cities report uh, sits as to how how to to give a bit of space for other species to thrive. Thank you. That's, that's really good. And, and thanks for bringing us back to, you know, some of the things we should be doing and, and focusing. I really appreciate that. And it's one, wonderful chatting to you. Maybe we'll get a few questions from people who are listening to this who just maybe want to know a little bit more. I'll put some links uh, to some of the organizations you've mentioned and so on. And there's a lot of information out there, but I really appreciate you taking time to to kind of simplify really for somebody like me who just is, is eager to know more, but is not a scientist. So uh, thank you, Natalie. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon.